As you're turning to the book of Jude, where you should be turning to because that's where we are tonight. I mentioned last Thursday night that I was going Friday to Colorado Springs and then to Pueblo. Friday night we had an outreach um, from the radio station that we have our show on up there, and we had a great time. Uh, we had over a thousand show up, and uh, we had people come to know Christ, and it was really neat that a couple Mormons that were there came to know Jesus Christ. And uh, the relatives who brought them had been praying for quite some time for them. And uh, then Saturday we had a, a Bible study conference on how to study the Bible, and then came back for Sunday, left Monday, trained this new group going out. <laughs> now our group comes home. And now tonight we're in the book of Jude once again. If you have been with us, you know that we're studying this very much in depth. This is our fifth or sixth week in the book of Jude, and we're still in verse 3. It's because the book of Jude is the only book in the entire Scripture entirely devoted to the whole idea of falling away or the great apostasy, where the orthodox historic Christian faith would be challenged and the Christians are exhorted to take a stand for the faith or to put up a good fight for the faith, once for all delivered to the saints. And so we read, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ. Mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints, for certain men have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men, who turned the grace of our Lord God into licentiousness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. We mentioned last week how important it is to make a stand. To make a stand for what you believe, but first of all, you've got to know what you do believe before you can make a stand for it. It's important that you know what the faith is so that you don't always scratch your head and say, I don't know what I believe, but I know it's important. And it's not what you believe. We need to know what it is that we might contend, not attack, but put up a defense for the faith. And we have to remember once again that Christians aren't to attack, but to defend the attack. And actually, that's where the cults have come in. We're not attacking Jehovah Witnesses or Mormons or Christian scientists or on and on and on. And I say that because we're going to quote many of them tonight. But we are defending their attack against the church, even as Jude, John, Paul, and Peter, all of them, had to withstand the attacks in the early church. Several months ago when I had those Mormon fellas in our office that I told you about last week, in the course of the conversation, and I thought we were having really a good time, one of the young elders, as they call them, began to weep started getting very emotional. And, you know, anytime somebody cries, then you want to say, okay, look, I'm sorry. And he started crying. He goes, I can't believe that here are men of God, supposedly, all of us, 
arguing with one another when we all believe the same thing. And how could you say that we're not your brothers? I can't believe it. How could you say we're wrong? I can't believe it. I said, wait a minute. I appreciate your emotion, but it won't work here. We're not attacking you. The Mormons have come along and said, Orthodox, historic Christianity is wrong. Joseph Smith said the angel or God or some emanation from heaven told him that we're all wrong, we've always been wrong, no one on earth is right but you. We can't let that kind of accusation go unchallenged. We're not attacking you. In the early church, there were two groups. The Gnostics... And you remember that the Gnostics said there's a special knowledge that only we have. Your average run-of-the-mill Christian isn't mature like we are. Thus, we're here to enlighten you with our special knowledge. And then on the other hand, alluded to in verse 4, were a group called antinomians who believed they were free from the law, which they meant is free from any moral constraint. I can live any way I wish to, I can live and sleep with anyone I want to. I can sin like crazy because I'm free from the law, any moral constraint. It was because of those accusations against the early church who held that the Bible was the Word of God and at that point had received a commonly held belief system. It was because of those attacks and those beliefs that Jude felt compressed, literally, by the Spirit of God to write this. He said, you know, I sat down to write about the common salvation. I wanted to just encourage you, write about atonement, redemption, the love of God, and just probably say, I love you, I'm praying for you. But necessity was laid upon me, as it says literally, or I was compressed, detoured by the Holy Spirit to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith. Now again, by way of review, there's a couple things we have discovered about this. Number one, the early church, ever since about 1 to 200 A.D., saw the necessity to start drawing lines of demarcation, saying, this is right, this is wrong. This is orthodox. This is heretical, heresy. Now, when you think of a heretic, you think of some wild-eyed fanatic frothing at the mouth. It's not what it is. Someone who is orthodox, the word means beliefs that have always been held by the majority of Christians since this thing called the church began. Heresy, on the other hand, is a set of opinions held in contradiction to that which has been commonly held by the church from the beginning. The majority of Christians from the beginning, historically, who have tenaciously held to certain truths passed on by Jesus and the apostles and so forth. It is an important issue. It's nothing to be played with. It's nothing to just say, oh, it doesn't matter. Look, don't be so nitpicky about it. Let's just all join arms and love the Lord Praise God. Well, listen to what the Apostle Paul wrote to the Galatians, something I know that by now you're probably familiar with. He said, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ, and you are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and trying to pervert the gospel of Christ 
But even if we, or an angel from heaven, including Moroni or anyone else, preach a gospel other than the one we preached to you, let him be eternally condemned. You can't get any stronger than that. You can't find anything that would press to us the importance of contending earnestly for the faith. You see, a counterfeit can be deadly. It might look like the real thing, but it can be deadly. I heard of a hospital called Binghamton County Hospital several years ago had a high ratio of infant mortality. Babies within the hospital were dying. They tried to discover why. And they found that the formula that was given, that salt was substituted instead of sugar. And though it looked the same in the formula bottle, one caused death and the other promotes life. Though there are certain similarities of other belief systems, though they say, Jesus, God, the Holy Spirit, the Bible, praise the Lord, Don't automatically think that they're all the same. Ask them to define their terminology. When they say, I believe in Jesus, and you're thinking, well, what's wrong with that? So do I. Ask them to define who Jesus is. And you will find many times their Jesus is different from your Jesus. The one that has been passed on, as Paul the Apostle said, a gospel other than the one preached to you. So he says, contend earnestly for the faith. This evening, as this is part two to verse three, and next week will be part three to verse three, let me just tell you where we're going. We want to discuss who is attacking, who is out there leveling attacks against you and what you believe. We want to discuss what they believe generally as opposed to what Orthodox Christians believe. And then next week, we want to talk about the last part of verse 3 where it says, the faith once for all delivered to the saints. How was it delivered? How was the Bible written? What is inspiration? Enlightenment. How do we know the Bible's inspired? How did they sit down and write these things? So we can be understand how it was received. Okay, now who, who's out there attacking? Well, we mentioned them generally last time. Number one... There is a group out there saying we're all the same. There is no difference. Jesus, Buddha, Muhammad, Krishna, Sun Young Moon, on and on and on. It's all the same. It's this, it's this huge, broad freeway system. And there's different lanes and different cars, different systems, but we're all going in the same direction. All paths lead to God. And so when you share the uniqueness of Christ, they'll smile at you and say, oh, that's nice. I'm glad you believe that. I believe something different. And we're all going to the same place. Of course, the New Age movement is perhaps the greatest proponent of that kind of a system. The truth is they are not compatible. Many of those religious systems, not only are they not compatible with Christianity, but mutually exclusive. Now, they can all be wrong, That's a possibility. They can't all be right because of the claims. For instance, some of the Eastern religions, the holy books of the Hindus, the Bhagavad Gita, the Upanishads, believe in the system called monism. Everything is God. God is everything. You are God. I am God. The pulpit is God. The door is God. 
God is everything, everything is God. We're a part of the divine, a spark of the divine consciousness in every creature. Then there is Buddhism that says God is impersonal. That's in distinction to Christianity that doesn't say everything is God, but God is personal, first. Secondly, He's separate and distinct from His creation. He is the Creator who created His creation, not a part of Himself, though man is in the image and likeness of God, but that means something different. But man is separate and distinct from the Creator in need of the Creator's supernatural intervention through salvation. Then the attack is coming from those who say, as some say, we're all right. Many groups are saying, you, not us, you are all wrong. Everyone is wrong except us. We're the only ones right. And so you have the Mormons that point to you as a cult and the Jehovah Witnesses as a cult and the Christian scientists as a cult and everybody is a cult except them. And vice versa. So we... In a, in a world filled with that kind of terminology, it's a cult. I mean, I've even heard people say that Calvary Chapel is a cult. Okay, since that word is being used so much, what is a cult? It's important that we understand what that is, what the true definition is. We are being attacked by groups like the Unification Church, they call themselves a church, by the notorious Sun Myung Moon, the Korean evangelist turned Messiah, who said, quote, We, the Moonies, are the only people who truly understand the heart of Jesus and the anguish of Jesus and the hope of Jesus. See, the only problem is, is the cults have no objective, independent way to test their teachings. It's just, well, we're right. Well, how do you know? Well, we are. Well, how do you know? Well, it was revealed to us that we are. Well, how do you know your revelation is correct? We don't doubt well, you should. And I always turn to Acts 17.11 as kind of the basis for the receiving of anything. If you don't know that, some of you don't because you're turning to it to find out what it says. I'll save you the time. Let me tell you what it says. It should be something you commit to memory. Paul said, those in Thessalonica or those in Berea were more noble or fair-minded than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word of God with joy or with readiness of mind, but they searched the scriptures daily to see if these things be so. And so should you. When any teacher, any pastor, self-included, any radio teacher, any television evangelist tells you something, receive it, but search the scriptures daily to see if these things be so. Okay. There's a few characteristics of what a cult is. Number one, we just covered. Everybody's wrong but the cult group. Everybody has historically been wrong except that cult group who's come now to surface to enlighten you. A second characteristic of a cult is that they attack the deity of our Lord Jesus Christ. They either lower Him to the level of a human or elevate humans to the level of deity. Of course, the Bible says that Jesus Christ is God. And that we cannot tamper with that doctrine. In fact, Paul the Apostle warned the Corinthians, for if he who comes preaches another Jesus, whom we have not preached, you may well put up with it. He was concerned that the Corinthians 
would put up with any new philosophy, any religious system, because they mentioned the name Jesus. That's why I said define what Jesus is. Ask them, who is Jesus? Is he the only unique begotten Son of God, fully God, fully man, who died physically for the sins of the world, rose physically and will come again physically? Is he God in human flesh? Well, no. Then you're dealing with another Jesus. Same name, but another Jesus. Thirdly, a cult denies that man is saved by an act of God's grace through the agency of our faith or our putting our trust in Him. That's too simple for them. They believe that we are saved by a system of works, whatever their trip is. Some will say, oh, you're saved by faith, plus the belief in our system, the continuing membership in the Mormon church or whatever. A fourth characteristic of a cult is the leader. Usually a cult gravitates around some kind of a leader, the teachings of that leader that is often opposed to the teachings of the Scripture because the leader claims to have a new interpretation. I know you've always heard it this way, but... And I know everyone else believes differently, but... And they gravitate around the teaching of a cult leader rather than the Scripture. Victor Paul Paul Wirwell, who started and continued for a long time to be the leader of the Way International. Herbert W. Armstrong. Mary Baker Eddy with Christian Science. People gravitated toward the teachings of that person and often elevated those teachings above Scripture. A fifth characteristic of a cult is that they claim to believe the Bible but will distort the teachings of the Bible about man, about God, about Jesus Christ. And we're going to give you some of those examples tonight. Many of them, as already noted, claim to have extra-biblical revelations. That's why we pointed out last week the end of verse 3. The faith once for all delivered to the saints. If it's true, it's not new. If it's new, it's not true. Once for all. There is no more continuing revelation that God hasn't said to man. If you think there is, you are on the way or involved in a cult, perhaps. Well, what about the gift of prophecy? That's different. It's not going to be in addition or contradistinction to the Word of God. In fact, Paul the the Apostle says, when there is a gift of prophecy, let the elders of the church judge. With what? With the only criterion of truth, the Word of God. Let me give you a few examples of this. The Mormon Church, in the Articles of Faith for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, say, quote, We believe the Bible to be the Word of God insofar as it is correctly translated. Well, who sits at the wheel determining who it's and how it's correctly translated? Them. And they will flatly say, This is right. Well, that's not translated right. And what is their basis of authority? The Book of Mormon, the Pearl of Great Price, Doctrines and Covenants, and so forth. And the teachings and the interpretations of the elders of the Mormon church, they'll examine the Bible and they'll have the freedom to pick and choose. This is right, this is wrong, this is wrong, this is right. Of course, Christian science has believed the Bible is corrupt and mistaken and the teachings of Mary Baker Eddy should be seen as better. Reverend Moon has the divine principle because he says the Bible is incomplete 
And so we must complete the doctrinal revelation. And then the sixth mark, and there are many others, but these are the major ones. The sixth mark of a cult is false prophecy. You see, they'll claim to be God's inspired prophet, and they'll make predictions that are false. If you call them on the carpet, they'll say, well, we didn't really mean that. And so that's why it's important, if you can, to have a documentation of what they said in their own writings. And by the way, that is available in any good Christian bookstore. For instance, the Jehovah Witnesses have left a huge paper trail of false prophecies saying the end of the world will come in 1914. It's the consummation of all things. They said it over and over again in the 1890s. 1914 came. They said, this is the year. It's here. In fact, they said, quote, the full establishment of the kingdom of God in the earth will be A.D. 1914. 1914 came and 1915 came. And in 1915 and shortly thereafter, they said, well, it's not 1914, it's 1925. Well, 1925 came and went. And then they made up new dates. Now they've, after seven or eight dates, they finally decided we better quit this. People might think we're false prophets. Of course they will because you are. According to Deuteronomy, if you predict something in the name of the Lord, it doesn't come to pass. You're to be stoned because you're a false prophet. Of course, that's not underlined in their Bibles. Those are the marks of a cult. Now, that is in distinction to the faith once for all delivered to the saints. By the way, many of these doctrines, many of these teachings surfaced at the time of Jude and later on after 70 A.D. In the second and third centuries, many groups arose and said, Jesus is not flesh. He's not, he was never a man. The Gnostics believed that. Jesus was never God. Arius believed that. And you can trace almost every cult system today to something that happened in the early church. What's interesting is to find the church's response to that. What was their response? They got together in councils. And they decided, historically, that's wrong. And they labeled those people, naming them by name as heretics. That is, people who hold an opinion in contradiction to what has been commonly upheld and believed by Christians throughout history. Okay, let's ask ourselves then the question, what is the faith that Jude speaks about? Well, as we mentioned last week, the faith is a term that designates the whole enchilada, the whole body of revelatory truth passed down as Jesus said, upon this rock I will build my church. He has built his church and given to the church teachings embodied in the scripture that we hold as the word of God. It's called by other things in the scripture. It's called the apostles' doctrine. In Acts 2.42, and it says, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, breaking of bread, fellowship, and prayer. It was the doctrine the apostles received from Jesus, and they were teaching it to others. Many of them, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, were writing letters. It's now compiled. This is the faith. And so Paul said, examine yourselves whether or not you are in the faith. That is, look at your life, hold it up to this book, and see if they match. Examine yourself whether you are in the faith. And that's important because Paul wrote to Timothy and said, the Spirit expressly says in the latter times, some will depart from the faith and give heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines taught by demons. 
Now, I want us to look at the essentials of the Christian faith tonight. And I'd like you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. This is sort of an encapsulated form, what we're going to read together. 1 Corinthians 15. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel, which I preached to you, which you also received and in which you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures, and that he was seen by Cephas and then by the twelve. And then he was seen by over five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. Now, in those verses about Christ is given in an encapsulated form the basic truths of Christianity that form a yardstick by which to measure everything else. Even though it's in an encapsulated form, it encompasses so much. The person and the work of Jesus Christ, the sin of man, the need for redemption, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and the authority of the Scripture is all encapsulated in that verse. That's sort of the gospel in a nutshell. That Jesus Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture. He was buried, arose again, and so forth, what we just read. And those are some key issues because most cults and other religions, first of all, make Jesus Christ out to be a man. Less than who the Bible says he is. They say he's a great teacher, a great example, or a martyr. Remember, Jesus went to his disciples and he said, who do men say that I am? Remember their opinions? They didn't say, you know, a lot of people think you're God in human flesh, the Messiah of Israel. They said, you know, some people say you're John the Baptist or one of the prophets risen from the dead. They had all sorts of interesting ideas. A good man, a good prophet. Who do you say that I am? You are the Christ, Peter retorted, the son of the living God. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. Bingo! Flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father, which is in heaven. E. Stanley Jones, who was a missionary to the Asian continent, India and China, said that Christianity revolves around the person of Jesus Christ. And this is really the essential. That's why I say ask people when they say we believe in Jesus. Well, who do you believe Jesus really is? E. Stanley Jones noted, Christianity has its creeds, but it is not a creed. It has its institutions, but it is not an institution. It has its rights, but it is not a right. Christianity is Christ, or rather our response to Him. Now what do we know about Jesus briefly from the Scriptures? Well, He's fully God, the Bible says, and at the same time, fully man. He's not half God, half man. He's fully God, fully man. When He walked this earth, He was totally a human being. The Gnostics didn't believe that. Because the Gnostics said everything material, flesh, wood, everything, is evil, couldn't have been created by God, therefore Jesus couldn't be flesh. 
Jesus was an emanation, not God, but not flesh at the same time, sort of in between. But we know that Jesus was a man, a physical being. The Bible says in Luke, Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man. He was susceptible to human need. In John chapter 4, he sat at the well in Samaria. And Jesus was tired from his journey and he sat down by the well. He slept. When they went on the boat to cross the Sea of Galilee, Jesus was in the bottom sleeping because the Bible says he was exhausted. Then, of course, we remember that Jesus wept. He wept over Jerusalem. He had the same emotions, the same physiological responses as any human being would have. And then finally he died. We remember that the soldiers, when they came to Jesus Christ, they were going to break his legs. They saw that he was already dead. And so Jesus died, 1 Corinthians 15, according to the Scriptures. Jesus also was God. Now that's important. I know that some disbelieve that. But folks, if Jesus Christ was only a man, then we're in trouble. Why are we in trouble? Because if Jesus was only a man, you're following a crazy person. You're following a lunatic. Or you're following someone who was a liar because he said he was God. He made that claim over and over again. And if he wasn't, look out. Where does that leave you? Of course, John, when he wrote his gospel, he said, In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and God was the Word, literally. And the Word became flesh, and He dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory as the one of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The Weiss translation of the Bible expands that literally and says, In the beginning the Word was, as to His essence, absolute deity. Jesus Himself claimed He was equal with God. He said, Philip, have I been so long with you, and you don't know who I am? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. In the temple courts, he said, I and my father are one. To his enemies, he said, oh, listen, you talk about Abraham. Before Abraham was, I am. They took up stones to kill him because he claimed equality with God. Because to say I am was the Old Testament formula of timelessness. It's the same thing God spoke to Moses at the burning bush. And Moses said, God, if I go in your name, I don't even know your name. What is your name? He said, well, Mo, I want you to tell them I am has sent you to them. I am that I am. And so Jesus said, before Abraham existed, I am, ego, emi in the Greek. That exclamation of timelessness. And that is why that great professor from Cambridge, now in heaven, who was once an agnostic if not an atheist, C.S. Lewis, after converting to Christianity, said, I am trying here to prevent the foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. That is, that I am ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. Lewis says, that is the one thing we must not say. For a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God 
or else a madman or something worse. Thomas realized that. When Jesus appeared to him, Thomas said, My Lord and my God. Even his enemies were aware of it. Jesus said, Many good works I do. You guys have seen me. You've seen the works I've performed. Which of the works that I have done do you stone me for? He said, We don't stone you for any good works, but because you being a man are continually making yourself to be God. So whether the Jehovah Witnesses ever think Jesus claimed to be God or not, the enemies in the New Testament knew He claimed to be God. They said so. You as a man continually make yourself God. Of course, His works testified of that. He could forgive sins. And the Jews rightly said, Who can forgive sins but only God? That's the point. Only God can forgive sins. Jesus was God. Now, cults don't believe that, as we've noted. The Unitarian Church, which could be called the humanistic church, says that Jesus is no more or less divine than you or I. He was just a guy. The Jehovah Witnesses say Jesus is not God, but God's first creature of creation and is Michael the archangel. That's who Jesus is, an archangel, his first and highest creation. Christian science says, quote, If there ever or if there had never existed such a person as the Galilean prophet, it would make no difference to me. Mormonism says that Jesus is among the spirit children of Elohim. Quote, By obedience and devotion he attained to the pinnacle of intelligence, which ranked him as a god even in his pre-existent state. That's what the Mormons believe. It's not what the Bible teaches. That's what cults believe. Next, we read in 1 Corinthians 15... in the encapsulated form of what the faith is, that man is a sinner. Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. One of the fundamentals of the faith is that you and I are in trouble and we are sinners and we need a Savior. You can't build a church apart from that truth. All have sinned, including you, and have fallen short of the glory of God. Isn't that what Paul says in Ephesians 4? And you, he made alive or quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. In times past, you meandered according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power, and I shouldn't point out, the prince of the power of the air, the one who works in the children of disobedience. You were by nature the children of wrath, Paul said. You were sinners by nature. You were sinners by choice. Because whether you like to admit it or not, you have an evil nature within you. And sin is enticing. And we all like to do it. And the devil knows we like to do it. Because when Adam sinned, he spread his sin throughout all of the world. See, Adam was made in the image of God. But he tossed it in. He tossed in that privilege when he obeyed the suggestion of the devil and plunged the human race into sin. You know what that means? That means every single person, every little baby that's born, that cuddly little infant, has a sinful nature and is born a sinner. So David said, I was born in iniquity, conceived in iniquity, and sin did my mother conceive me. Everyone is born in need of a Savior. We were born in sin. Jeremiah said, the heart is deceitful above all else and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Even Jesus said, I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. That's what a Christian is, a sinner who knows he's one and knows he needs help and receives Christ to get help. However, Christian science says, this is Mary Baker Eddy, sin, evil, and death do not exist. 
In her publication, Health and Science, she says, Since God is all, there is no room for the opposite. Therefore, evil, being the opposite of goodness, is unreal. Then we have the Mormons who teach that man progressively is becoming a god. And if you're a good Mormon and your marriage has been blessed celestially in Salt Lake City, the Mormon tabernacle, with or without the choir, you can go, you and your wife, and be a god over your own planet, and you can populate it, and you will be God. The Mormons say that, quote, Adam deliberately and wisely chose to touch the forbidden tree and partake of the fruit. Adam cried, Because of my transgressions, my eyes are opened, and in this life I shall have joy. Then the Bible says, according to 1 Corinthians 15, that Jesus died for our sins. Okay? Jesus is God. He's fully God. He's fully man. Man is a sinner. Jesus died for our sins because the only way we could ever get back to God is have an atonement for our sins. And Christians believe, this is essential, that when Jesus died on the cross and shed His blood, that that was satisfactory payment to pay for all the sins of the world, that whosoever believes in Him will not perish, but have everlasting life. Moreover, it's a free gift. You don't have to work for it. All you have to do is receive it. You can't add to it. You can't take anything away from it. You can't turbocharge the Christian faith, pour something else in it to make it better than it already is. You can't add one thing to His work. However, Christian science disagrees. They say... One sacrifice, however great, is not sufficient to pay the debt of sin. This is a direct quote. The material blood of Jesus Christ was no more efficacious to cleanse from sin when it was shed upon that accursed tree than when flowing in his veins as he went daily about his father's business. The Jehovah Witnesses say, His perfect human life with all of its rights and prospects was laid down in death, but not for sin and not for punishment. They also said, It is a gross twisting of the Scripture to throw Jesus' words of John 3 to make them embrace all mankind. John 3, 3 is, Unless a man is born again, he can never see the kingdom of God. He's saying it's a gross interpretation to think that applies to everyone. This great crowd of people are not born again, nor do they need to be born again because they gain everlasting life on earth. Then we have the teachings of Herbert W. Armstrong in the Worldwide Church of God who said, The blood of Jesus Christ does not finally save anyone. It saves merely from death penalty. And then he says, Baptism is the essential ordinance for salvation. You must be baptized to be a Christian. And he said, A majority of those who die without Christ will be resurrected again and gain the opportunity to believe again during the millennium. So if you blow it now and you don't believe Him, don't worry about it. You'll find out you were wrong, you'll be resurrected, and you'll get a second chance. The Mormons believe that baptism can be done for your dead relative. They call it baptism by proxy for the dead. And the Mormons say, say, the saints are redeeming their unbaptized dead from the grasp of Satan. So they teach salvation plus works. The very thing that Paul said, if any man preaches any other gospel, even we or an angel from heaven, let him be accursed. Anathema in Greek, cursed below the lowest hell. Is it something to be concerned about? Sure it is. Is it something we should know? Yes. Why? Because 
The scripture says we should contend earnestly, vigorously, intensely for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Then we have, according to Paul's words in front of you in 1 Corinthians 15, the resurrection from the dead. One of the biggies, one of the great hinges of the church is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is the center of every single sermon Peter and Paul preached in the first years of Christianity, that Jesus rose from the dead. You know what happens if Jesus didn't rise from the dead? The Scripture says, If Christ did not rise, your faith is futile and your sins have never been forgiven. You see, the resurrection sets Christianity apart from every other belief system, every other major world religion. If you just believe in some dead martyr... You're no different than a Buddhist because Buddha's dead. He never got up again. You're no different than a Muslim. Muhammad is dead, never got up again. Confucius is dead, never got up again. If Jesus is simply dead, there's no difference between you and anybody else. And I guess all roads lead to somewhere. Who knows where? Because They're all the same. It's that one distinction that marks Christianity from anything else. And it's because Jesus rose that we have hope, Paul said, that we'll rise again. It's the resurrection that lets me stand up at a funeral with a big smile for those who are Christians who have died. And said, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. He is the resurrection. There is hope after death. The Jehovah Witnesses don't believe that. They don't believe that Jesus physically rose from the dead, but that it was a spiritual resurrection, that His invisible spirit returned to its former state, but that it was not something that is physical. Then there's Christian science, who again say that Jesus' students did not perform many wonderful works until they saw Him after His crucifixion and learned that He had never died. In his final demonstration called the Ascension, get this, which closed the early record of Jesus, he arose above the physical knowledge of his disciples and the material senses saw him no more. What does that mean? He arose above the physical knowledge, that's the resurrection, some kind of esoteric higher knowledge, and the material senses saw him no more. Then, of course, there is the attack on the authority of Scripture. This book is a good start, but it's not all that pertains to life and godliness. There's more. You know, I think that Mark Twain was right. He said, A lie can travel halfway around the world while truth is just lacing up her boots. Why is that? Because we have an enemy that we mentioned last week. The strategy, I believe, spiritually against the church in the early church was persecution. Satan's strategy now is, I can't beat them, I'll join them. Let me corrupt them from within. Now, we rejoice that the walls of communism have broken down in countries like Eastern Europe, in countries like the Soviet Union, and in many other countries. And it's time to get in and do something. And yet I fear for what could happen as cults are already going. They beat us to the punch. They were there a long time before we were both in the Soviet republics and in Eastern Europe. They've gone there by the thousands. And people are eating it up. 
while in China there is persecution, and yet the underground church is growing like crazy. So we need to pray for those countries. It should be on our prayer list. And more than pray, we should contend. Every one of you tonight, with the authority of the Scripture, should contend earnestly, vigorously for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. And folks, the truth doesn't need updating. Well, let's make it relevant. It is relevant. It is. You can't make it any more relevant than it is. How do you make it relevant? Try it on. Apply it. Use it. That's where you find its relevance. There was a man who went up to one of his old friends who was a a music teacher at a school. Came in and said, Friend, how are you doing? What's the good news for today? And the old teacher looked at him, took a hammer, walked up to a tuning fork, and struck the tuning fork. And he said, That is an A. It was an A 5,000 years ago. It's an A today, and it will be an A 10,000 years from now. All right. He said, now, the soprano upstairs is flat. The tenor down the hall, off key. The piano downstairs, never tuned right. But, and he dung it in, dang, that is an A. It will always be an A. And that's the good news for today. This is an A. It rings true. Now, there's people who sing off key. There's people a little flat theologically, but that does not make this untrue. It was true 2,000 years ago. It's true today. And heavens and earth will pass away, but my word will never pass away. It will always be true. And that's the good news for today. And that's why it pays to be orthodox historic in the Christian faith, standing up for the faith. Some of the things we just covered, once for all, delivered to the saints. Will there be attacks? Believe me, you'll contend, but they'll keep coming and they'll get worse. I'd like to share a poem that was given to me recently. I paused one day beside the blacksmith's door and listened to the anvil ring the evening chime. And looking in, I saw upon the floor old hammers worn from beating years of time. And so I thought, the anvil of God's word, for ages skeptics' blows have beat upon. And though the noise of infidels was heard, the anvil is unworn, the hammer's gone. It's been beat upon for generations, but all those hammers are gone. It still remains true. It's always been an A. It will always be an A. Next week, in part three of Jude, verse three, we want to discuss something that I've gotten a lot of questions on, how we got the Bible. Because it says that this faith was once for all delivered to the saints. And you get questions. Well, how do you know it's really true? I mean, how did we get the Bible? Did they take dictation? Did God send them in a room and say, now hear this? And they just, okay, took it. What does it mean to receive the Bible? How do we know it's inspired and so forth? We want to talk about inspiration and and the delivery and so forth next time. And then we'll get into verse 4 following that. Let's pray. Father, the Scripture tells us 
that the statutes of the Lord are right and they rejoice the heart. We know what that's like, Lord. We know what it's like to wake up in the morning, be clouded in our thinking, messed up in our perspective, only to sit down and read the Scripture and have our hearts rejoice as life is put into perspective with truth. We thank you, Lord, that this has always been an A and it will always be an A. And that's the good news for today. That we have something that is reliable, once for all delivered to the saints. Help us, Lord, to in love stand up, not to shrink away, but to stand up for the truth. To do it with gentleness and respect, as we are told in the New Testament. To contend, but not be contentious. To withstand, but not be obnoxious. To share the truth in love without pride, without arrogance. For you said knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Cause us to love one another, unbelievers who need to know the truth, and your word, which is truth. For we ask it in Jesus' name, amen.